came out of an essay that I wrote in May of 2016, actually. And the essay, um, I had just been thinking for over a year at that point about how I kept hearing that women were lying about sex. Mm. I kept coming up. Um, fake orgasm is an obvious one. There was this idea women were lying about virginity. It, it, this idea that you were hearing about is kind of interesting because, you know, I, I assume that you've Perhaps right. played a role in it that was, at some it point. Was, it was sticking in my brain. Okay, it, it wasn't like a big, a big shock to you. No, it was not a big shock to me. But it was. It actually started um, with a study. I think in like, in like December 2014 or 2015 um, about female ejaculation, mm. where it was like, oh, we've studied seven women and we've determined that it's actually just pee. And so I got really annoyed by that because I was like, this just. There was Why this- don't you believe in science, Lux? Right, but there was just this like gleeful, yeah. like, "Oh, you dumb bitches!" Yeah. Uh, can I curse? By the way, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I was like, "You dumb bitches!" Like, you don't know your bodies. You're actually just pissing yourself. And this just like desire to yeah. just sort of like mock women and tell women we don't know our bodies was that was where it really like annoyed me a lot. And then I started thinking about how this was this recurring pattern that I saw this obsession with women lying about sex. And so when I wrote this essay. My initial assumption was I was going to talk to a bunch of experts and I was going to kind of blow the lid off this and be like, women are trustworthy and it's the patriarchy that's determined that women are liars and that's what's going on. But as I actually talked to people, I realized that it was more complicated than that Mm -hmm. and that women are often lying, but we're lying not out of some kind of malicious intent but we're lying out of self-protection often or just to get by in the course of a day because, as I explore in many chapters, there's – just society is set up to tell women that there's an appropriate way to be and behave. And if you are not that way, then you are harassed or you're punished or nobody believes you. So you often find yourself in a position where it makes sense to lie. And so – I mean, the book's called Faking It, so the first chapter is, in fact, about fake orgasm. Um, And a lot of what I talk about is just that, you know, there's this overemphasis on orgasm as the barometer for pleasurable sex. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case for everybody, I mean, regardless of your gender. It makes sense, though, that that, that's the way that men would contextualize it Mm -hmm. because that's the way that they – Right. Interact with sex. No, of course. Although not all men sure. uh, need to or want hashtag to. Or, yeah, not all hashtag men. Hashtag not all men. But no. Um, so, so you know, I, I like I find like the orgasm gap to be a frustrating discussion because I think that quantifying pleasure in that mm. way is counterproductive. I think talking about the pleasure gap, talking about the fact that oftentimes women don't enjoy sex as much as their male partners, mm-hmm. that's a useful discussion. But that's a discussion that's kind of fuzzy, and I think that's why people want to focus on orgasm because you can quantify it. But I think that quantifying orgasm is fundamentally problematic for a number of reasons. Um, And so, you know, one of the things I say is that, you know, everybody thinks like, oh, women are just faking orgasm um, because they're having really bad sex and they they don't know their bodies and they just want to please their partners. Trying to get over, (laughs) trying to finish the, the deed. Right. And sometimes that's it. But sometimes people are having really enjoyable sex. But for whatever reason, they're not going to orgasm or they don't want to orgasm. But they're with someone who sees their orgasm as necessary, often Mm -hmm. for their own ego, not for uh, their partner's enjoyment. Um, And so, you know, if it's like you know that you have to produce an orgasm in order to please your partner and you are perfectly satisfied with the sex you're having, faking it's kind of this strategy to – 
you know, make everybody happy. And, you know, I think in a better world, we would have open, honest discussions and people could say, like, this is what I want and it doesn't necessarily include X, Y, and Z and have your partner be okay with that. But a lot of people aren't there yet. And so faking it, I think, is a social strategy to just kind of make things easier for everybody. It also, but it also for, for their buddies, the water, because there is this sort of like knowledge that women do right. fake it. So asking, you know, asking them to sort of like go the other, the, the extra mile and be honest about it. There's, there's kind of a breakdown there. Right. right? And so, so again, it's the easiest way to quantify. It's like sports, right? It's the easiest yeah. way. It's like scoring points, the easiest way to quantify pleasure. Right. And it's, it's a broken model. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so other chapters touch on, Virginity, for instance, and look at like virginity tests, tests both in America and outside of America and the fact that virginity and everything we think about virginity is kind of this like, social construct again. But, you know, people are judged by that. And so there is, in some cases, a pressure on women to lie about virginity or, you know, in the case of like a literal virginity test, like you might see in Egypt, mm-hmm. it's often based on the hymen and the hymen is not real. Like, the hymen, such as it exists, is just a leftover scrap of flesh from when the fetal vagina is carved out. Like, it's not a freshness seal. It's not something (laughs) that, like, has to be destroyed before sex. Like, some people have hymens that are just, like, a tiny bit of flesh that disintegrates really easily. Mm -hmm. Some people do have really thick hymens that may cover most of the vaginal opening, but that's not the norm necessarily and hymens come in a variety of shapes and sizes and textures Uh, because it's again it's not a functional thing it's just scraps of flesh there's a deeper problem there the the deeper problem is the demand that a woman be virginal during sex right no 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 well right and so so with regards just going back to just virginity tests with regards to that it's like if you've never had sex but you don't have genitals that conform to the idea Mm. of what someone who's never had sex looks like and you go and get a uh, hymenoplasty to create the appearance of a hymen so that you'll pass this test. Like, are you lying? I mean, you are lying. You are cheating. You have, like, gone out of your way, but you're also lying to prove something that's true. And so, yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, to to your point about about this expectation of women being virginal, that's uh, all of the chapters of the book, uh, the titles are a lie. Uh-huh. So it's uh, I Just Came is the first one. The one about virginity is I'm a virgin. Uh, chapter six is I've never done that before. And it talks about how many women told yeah. me that there is this expectation that you simultaneously be a virgin but also give a world-class blowjob. Sure. And yeah. so it's like you're struggling because you're supposed to have all these skills that you can only get through sexual experience but not have any sexual experience. Do you think that the, the you know the fact that I guess you know relative to you know several decades ago we're mm-hmm. more open about discussing some of these things um you know that 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 sex is more out there that it's shifted this that it's that it's sort of changed the dynamic that the obligation for women to lie about these things has lessened over the decades? Yes and no. Um I think women are lying about different things. Mm. Um I do think that you know there is like this greater burden now that Women are – maybe, again, there's an expectation that women have had some sex and mm-hmm. are not virgins, but now there is – well, you shouldn't have had too much sex, but yeah. also you should have all these skills. You should be really good at it. Yeah. Um, and, like, I don't like to blame porn for anything mm. um, because I don't think that – I don't think porn itself is the problem. I think the fact that we don't talk about sex 
And then we tell people that sex is incredibly important. So people latch on to whatever the first thing they see is. And for many people, that's porn. But, you know, sex help, sex advice manuals, a lot of them often do the same thing. Like Cosmo Mm -hmm. can, like, shape someone's idea of sex in a really harmful way as well. I mean, Cosmo has gotten better, but historic Cosmo. Like, anything, like rom-coms, all of these things can really give you a really harmful message of what sex is supposed to be like, because we also think there's one way that sex is supposed to be like. Um, So just going back, because I think porn is more present, it now has kind of shaped people's expectations in a very specific Mm -hmm. and very extreme way in some ways. And so it's, it's just, I mean, the problem is is that even as our like social mores shift and change, women are still being held to this idea that there's one right way to be a woman. And that, and again, you know, some in some social circles, there's less pressure. But I think the irony for me is that not the feminism I practice, but what I would consider a lot of like mainstream feminism has kind of created not freedom for women, but a new obligation and a new idea of what it is to be a woman. So, like, you know, you have a lot of feminists who talk about, like, women need to have orgasms. Women and like, push this orgasm narrative. Orgasm being empowerment. Right. This idea of, like, orgasm is empowerment. Or this idea of cunnilingus as, like, ultra important for all women. And, you know, everybody's body is different. And these, like, these, like, one-size-fits-all narratives about sex and sexuality and relationships and all of that are, that's the most toxic thing. And I think that... Again, like, you have this narrative of an empowered woman that's often just as harmful as this misogynist idea of what a woman is supposed to be because it's still attached to this idea that there is one way to be a woman and not that womanhood is complex and diverse and comes in a variety of experiences. Obviously, it's not the empowerment in and of itself. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. But it's the fact that it's attached to older stigmas. Well, and it's also this idea that there's one path to empowerment. I mean, so there's another chapter about, like, makeup. And I find I don't I don't really wear makeup that much because I just can't be bothered. But I also don't wear makeup that much because I have the privilege of having like naturally good skin mm-hmm. and having features that are considered conventionally attractive. And like I can go into a job and be taken seriously without mm-hmm. wearing makeup in a way that people who have cystic acne can't. But that said, it's like you know it, it's kind of died down as a trend but for a while there was like hashtag no makeup and you had like alicia keys and you had <laughs> just, just conventionally beautiful right. women yeah you had like mila kunis yeah. on like the cover of glamour or something being like i'm not wearing makeup and yeah. it was just like it was positioned as like liberation and freedom but then you go on like instagram and all the people who are not wearing makeup are conventionally attractive already. It's difficult terrain to, to navigate because, it, I mean, it sounds like it's something that's coming from a good place. Mm-hmm. Well, and so this is the thing. It's like I I defend lies because I think that most of the time when women lie, it's because you, we're being put in this impossible situation. And so you lie because, I mean, it's a, it's a short-term hack. Like if, you, if you're in a society that says like, well, you have to be beautiful – then of course you're going to wear makeup. And Mm. if makeup is a quote-unquote lie, like so be it, but you want to get that raise at work. You want to be taken seriously and you know that your worth as a person is going to be attached to your physical appearance, so you're going to use all the tools that you have in your arsenal. Mm. And like maybe that is lying, but it's also like, you know, the world is not fair to you if you are honest. You want someone to be empowered enough to not have to do these things, but on the flip side – 
you want them to be able to use whatever power they do have to get ahead. Right. So it's um in the conclusion of my book, I talked to Emma Salkowitz, who the, did the mattress performance at Columbia. Um, that's what they're best known for. And yeah. Emma, when we first met, Emma talked about because it was interesting because I thought Emma was going to be like, yeah, we must believe women, we must this, we must that, and kind of the like standard mm-hmm. narrative of uh, sex- anti-sexual assault activism. And it was a much more nuanced discussion where Emma talked about the feminism of empowerment versus the feminism of disempowerment, and that a lot of their work was recognizing their fundamental disempowerment and owning that and kind of seeing what you can subvert from that position of disempowerment, which is kind of how I feel about lying, that it's like, okay, I'm in this fundamentally disempowered position. What can I do with that? And like in Emma's case, it was interesting because their their follow-up project to Mattress Performance was to create create a sex tape that was a recreation of their rape and put it on the internet. And they're like, you know, like, am I trying to make myself believable? In some ways, I'm trying to be as unbelievable as possible because nobody is believing me. So if people are already doubting that I'm truly a rape victim, why don't I do the thing that supposedly no rape victim would ever do just to continue to, like, problematize this because there is no such thing as a quote-unquote real rape victim because like rape victims are infinitely capable and have all kinds of experiences i just that really stuck with me as just a really interesting framing i mean because it's one of the things that comes up when i talk to people about this is it's like oh well are you saying women should stop lying like what should women do and for me it's not about what should women do like women should do whatever they need to to get through the day certainly you would never put yourself in a position where you would want to give some blanket advice to an entire gender well that too but (laughs) but i will i will give blanket advice to men No, but I, I mean, I think whether like, solicited or not, right? No, but 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 I think that like because people are like, well, well, women should stop lying. Women should because people are so focused on that. Like yeah. you know, there's like the I have a boyfriend lie. I suppose the nature of the conversation and like the makeup conversation is coming mm-hmm. from a good place where people suggesting that are in a roundabout way saying that they shouldn't be forced to lie. Right, of course. But w- without relieving that fundamental problem. Exactly. And so, because it's like, it comes up too, where it's like, okay, women, when they're getting hit on by dudes at bars, will say, I have a boyfriend, yeah. independent of whether or not they do. And like, you'll see periodically this article where women are like, women, stop doing this. Like, you're just reinforcing this mm-hmm. idea that like, that w- us being left alone is not a right. You should just say like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Except if you say, I don't want to talk to you, they will continue to talk to you. And it may in fact get violent or it may get... Uh, really ugly. And so if if a fake boyfriend is going to ensure your safety, then do that. And and so what I'm really trying to say is that, you know, I don't think it's on women to take this grand stand towards honesty and being – I think it's very brave and I think it's very commendable when women choose to do that. But I think it's on the larger society to create a society that is safe for women to exist as ourselves. We need to create a society where if a man comes up to me and I say – yeah, I'm not interested, that that is something that's going to be respected and not something that's going to lead to me being badgered. Like, we need to create a society where I can say, you know, I'm really enjoying this sex. I am not going to have an orgasm and that is okay. Or where I can be open about, you know, I've had like X number of sexual partners and that doesn't tell you anything about who I am as a person. Whether that's I've had zero or whether that's I've had 500, that, that that is not necessarily going to 
impact my ability to be in a relationship, my ability to be whoever I am currently. Obviously, there's a difference in the stakes when it comes to lying to get yourself out of a position where you're, you know, putting yourself in yeah. a place of violence and then lying to essentially make the other person feel better within right. the context of a relationship. Those are, those are kind of, um, Sometimes that's not different. Sure. Sometimes if you don't make the person feel better, you are putting yourself in a position of violence. In a relationship where um, there's no perceived threat of violence Mm -hmm. and it's a, you know, mutually loving relationship. Yeah. um, Even though there's something underlyingly problematic with the fact that that women or people in general feel like they they need to lie. Is there a place for a small lie if if it comes to just making somebody kind of feel better about themselves? And and I mean, yeah. Again, I'm not. I'm not against lying, yeah. and I think like <laughs> I I personally don't tend to lie, yeah. but that's just who I am. But I'm not against lying, and I I, I think like it's it's complicated. Yeah, I I, I think that, I don't think that there is like it's like a you know an eight year old shows you their drawing and it's right. terrible, and you just want to like <laughs> high five them. You know, it's like it's like great job, you're so good at sex. Yeah, no, I mean, but it, yeah, it, it, if it if it if it benefits both people, sure, then sure. Um, but I think. And I think a lot of lies come out of a position where women mm-hmm. feel like they're benefiting both people, and great. But but it, it becomes thorny when it reinforces mm. um, this position of disempowerment and when it reinforces this social lie about women being one type of being. Where does female ejaculation come into this? From the standpoint so, of, like, obviously there's a lot of directions you can go yeah. in this. One of them is... Um, you know, it does seem like the notion became more prevalent as pornography became more yeah. mainstream. So it's funny. Uh, female ejaculation is not in the book. Like in earlier iterations of the proposal, I kept being like, I want a chapter on female ejaculation. And my agent kept being like, I don't think that's relatable enough. I don't think it's mainstream enough. That's an interesting conversation in and of itself, yeah. too. It's like I'm making a sex book. It wasn't so much that there weren't lines that they weren't willing to cross. It was just about, like, I wanted to be mainstream and I wanted yeah. to strike a balance. And it was also, like, can you really write a full chapter? And then as the I book... Bet, I bet you could. Probably. I, I know you. I bet you could write a book about it. <laughs> you really but as the book, it. as the proposal, I went through, like, ten iterations mm-hmm. of the uh, chapter outline. Um, and as it evolved, it went from being, like, extremely academic to being extremely personal to being the final version, which actually has a narrative flow through the different... Uh, chapters. I mean, and there was a chapter all about porn. Rape ended up coming into just the conclusion because I didn't want the book to be too much of a downer. But, you know, I will say the female ejaculation is is complicated for a number of yeah. reasons. Like, okay, female ejaculation in porn often is fake. As I suspect many orgasms are. Potentially, yeah. But again, like, why this idea that porn performers owe us some authentic orgasm is troubling to me. They're, I mean, they're it's acting. a performance, yeah. right? And it's like, it's hard. I mean, it's very difficult yeah. to orgasm, like, on a hot set in front of all the stuff when you're maybe not actually attracted to the person. <laughs> and I think if you are enjoying the sex, or even if you're not enjoying the sex, but you're able to, you're consenting and you want to be there and, like, you know, you're creating a good performance, then that's, like, that's what your job is. There's so many reasons why you might not enjoy the sex yeah. that day that have nothing to do with it depicting, like, bad sex um but that's a slight slight digression how tied is the not not just like knowledge and popular culture but Mm -hmm. the whole notion to the prevalence of pornography 
Um, I don't actually know. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, female ejaculation, I first really heard about it in these sort of, like, feminist sex spaces. Mm. And not really about pornography. And so it was kind of this parallel thing for me where I was From the aware. standpoint of it being empowerment in the same way yeah, as the orgasm is? Yeah, just sort of, like... Like, this really fun way to orgasm Mm. and this kind of, like, out of the sort of, like, Babeland good vibrations, like, queer women talking about it. Like, I feel like that's that's my association with female ejaculation more so than porn, although it certainly exists in porn. But porn, you know, sometimes it's faked, like, you know, where there's just a squirt bubble of water or sometimes it's faked where it's literally just pee. But, you know, it's that study that I was referencing... What was really interesting beyond just the, like, oh, it's just pee, like, you ladies are all lying. Like, the reason they were like, it's pee was because they were like, well, it's a bunch of fluid that's come. We, like, did a scan of the body, and it's fluid that's coming from the bladder. Which, like, to me, it's like, where the fuck did you think that fluid was Mm. coming from if it's, like, a... If it's a huge quantity of, of liquid, it's like there's not that many places it could come from. So, so it was less about the mechanism or the act that created it, more about the content itself. Right. They were just saying like, well, it's coming from the same place as yeah. pee, therefore it's pee. But then they also were like, but there's this other kind of female ejaculation that's like white, thicker white fluid. It's smaller amounts and basically that resembled like male mm-hmm. ejaculate and that that is – that is, like, rarer or, like, somehow more legitimate was kind of the implication of the study, which I was like, how how fascinating that that you think that that is more legitimate because it mimics this masculine experience. Does any of this matter? Yes. So this is the thing. Is like, for me, it's all of these questions about female yeah. ejaculation is, like, well, what are we actually asking? Because for me, as someone who has experienced... Not consistently, but certainly at times has experienced like the sort of like big gush of fluid during orgasm or just during pleasurable sex. It's like, okay, I have to think about it. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm just pissing the bed. If I'm just pissing the bed, do I care? (laughs) Not really, because it feels good and it's often like very diluted. It's not like, like smelly, like the way we think of pee. It's not like this. It's often more just kind of like water and not really scented. And so, Whatever, but it's like, for me, you know, this idea of like, well, it's really pee is just intended to shame female pleasure by associating it with something that we maybe think is gross or taboo. But I'm just sort of like, I don't care. I care, like, is my body feeling good? I guess if you really want to break it down, it's a question of like, um, you know, the male version having a very specific biological purpose in reproduction. Right. Well, and I think that... And, you know, everybody's always trying to be like, well, why is the female orgasm? Like, what is the evolutionary purpose of the female orgasm? That's a great tale for, like, why is the female orgasm? Right. But, you know, like, there's this idea that, like, that if you don't have a reason for something, that it's somehow not valid or that. And it's just like, or you could just enjoy it and it's great. As in if there isn't, an, an, like, an evolutionary right. reason. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I was um slight jumping off, but a slight tangent, but I was watching um, ContraPoint video trans trenders today and it's a whole thing where she just talked has a variety of her characters talking about this idea of like well who is truly trans and how do you quantify what's like really a woman and the conclusion is kind of like well all of these models are flawed and you kind of just have to take someone at their word and i i think that there is always this idea buried into our culture that you have to somehow evidence or some proof or some like 
narrative for why a thing is is the way it is. Otherwise, it's not valid. And, you know, for me, it's like, it feels good or it feels right. Like, if I say that I'm a woman and that feels right to me, then why does it matter to anybody else? And if I say that, like, this experience is pleasurable to me, then why does it matter if it's pee? Why does it matter? Like, why can't or, or why does it have to have some reproductive benefit or mm-hmm. some purpose beyond just it feels good to me? And I think I think that like certainly like sort of patriarchal masculine attitude um, finds women's pleasure baffling. I mean, first of all, it was just initially considered optional or non-existent. And this idea that women can have pleasure just for the sake of having pleasure, I think, is in some ways offensive. This does present kind of a shift, right? I mean, the, the, the one of the reasons why you're saying that in some cases women feel the need to lie about it is yeah. because they now, there's now, they now feel obligated to experience orgasm, which, which seems like a shift, right? In, yeah. in the way, way the patriarchy regards it. Of course. And I mean, I feel like... Is that is that a move in the right direction, at least? I think it's an overcorrection okay. is the problem. Yeah. Like, I would say in some ways it's a feminist overcorrection that has weirdly gotten co-opted by misogynists in some cases. Because it's like women are like, okay, we need to prioritize female pleasure, mm-hmm. which that's an admirable goal. Everybody's pleasure should be prioritized to the point where they feel fulfilled, whatever that looks like. But then, you know, you again, like I said earlier, it's like this idea of like pleasure is very fuzzy. And so just saying like, make sure your partner is satisfied is confusing for a lot mm-hmm. of people because how do you know if it's enough? In tech, we, we we have this idea of gamification. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? I am very familiar so, with gamification. So, you know, for the listener, gamification just being, you know, a way of putting things into the context of, of points. Like uh, Fitbit is the best example yeah. of it, right? Where you set a, a goal of 10,000 steps per day and then you get like your Fitbit lights up when you hit that. Yeah. And this sounds like a form of that where it's just easy for easier for us to just kind of wrap our feeble brains around the idea if, like, we could have a a chalkboard with points on it. Right. And so it's, like, orgasm becomes, like, the point. And then, but then, like I said, like, so feminists are, like, and you, again, you have, I've seen so many discussions or social media campaigns about, like, the orgasm gap. And there's this very big fixation on how many orgasms men are having, how many orgasms women are having, Mm -hmm. how many orgasms lesbians are having, how many orgasms straight women are having. And I find it point-missing because I mean, because one of the things that's hilarious to me is if women were having more orgasms than their male partners, which is, you know, potentially like because women are multi are capable sure. of being multi orgasmic in a way that many men are not, that would not be a problem. Like if it was like women are having twice as many orgasms as their male partners, we would be like problem solved. And that I think is so fascinating because then it's not the deficit; it's the problem that women are often being feeling unsatisfied mm. or in pain or all that. But it's like, it's not really about orgasm parity. It's about, again, fuzzier concept of women not being sexually satisfied. But, you know, so you see women pushing, you see feminists and women pushing this like orgasm narrative and like tying it to like the wage gap and tying it to all of these things in a way that I'm like, I get where you're going for, yeah. but I think it's fundamentally unhelpful. Um, and then... When I said, like, I think misogynists have co-opted it, you see this idea of female orgasm as a bragging right among men. And this idea of, like, men proving their masculinity, men proving their prowess by making their partners orgasm. And it's often, like, independent of what that partner wants – 
or what a good sexual experience is for her because she is now just an orgasm producing machine and her orgasms aren't really about her own pleasure. They're about her partner, her partner having a notch on his bet. And I, I just think all of that is like getting us further and further away from the actual question we should be asking and during sex, which is, am I enjoying this? Mm. And is the person I'm with enjoying this? Like, is this an experience that is building intimacy? Is this an experience that feels good for everybody? Is this an experience everybody is leaving satisfied with? Like that can, that can function in a variety of ways that are wholly independent of having an orgasm. And, and I mean, and it's it's just also so funny to me, again, just talking about this, like, flip of the orgasm thing, is it's like, it's so funny to me that if women don't orgasm, it's a failure, but if men don't orgasm, it's some feminist success. Or it's like, you talk about, like, if... And I, a lot of this is framed in a heterosexual context because that is the most common discussion. Mm-hmm. But I do think this comes up in queer context. This is not, like, just a men's problem. Like, this is something that we see replicated in a lot of stuff because a lot of queer um, – a lot of queer sex parrots heteronormative uh, ideas. Not all of it, but certainly that does happen. I just wanted to note that. But- do you feel that the fact that – when, when you're having the discussion, when you're writing the book, you know, you're going to sort of contextualize it from your own experiences yeah. and that, you know, that you've been in a heterosexual relationship. Does that color your narrative? I mean, so, so I'm queer. Yeah. Um, I have more experience with men just because that often happens for bisexual women. Um, and certainly it colors my experience, but I also talk to a lot of people mm-hmm. to bring in. And I talk to queer people and straight people. I tried to feature a lot of women of color. It just featured trans women just to like really make it clear that it's not about me. I mean, obviously a lot of this is coming from how I have perceived the world, but I, I did my best to not like make this a memoir. It's a tricky line to walk because, you know, Again, when we were talking about the inspiration for before, mm-hmm. you brought some of your own experiences. You use yourself as an example. Do you feel that that's important to some degree to kind of insert yourself into this story anecdotally? I mean, so I do at some points. I do when it feels relevant. Mm-hmm. If it's like, you know, there's a part about like stealthing and I've been stealthed. And I think it's relevant for me to say like I have personal experience with this. Stealthing is non-consensual condom removal. So it's basically when you consent to sex. But your understanding is that it's... That I know that word now. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised <laughs> you missed that. That was like uh, like two years ago. Yeah. There was a summer because uh, Alexandra Brodsky wrote a paper about okay. non-consensual condom removal. And then it became like a media buzzword about stealthing, the new dangerous sex trend. Cool. But it's like a thing that's been going on forever. And it's, it's, a, that is I mean, a, Julian a, Assange did it. It's a like, plot point in uh, Knocked Up. <laughs> yeah. But it's basically, you know, having unprotected sex with a partner without their consent. Yeah. And so, you know... I do bring personal experience to that. And, like, there's a study that I talk about by, like, Kelly Q. Davis where she's talking to young men about them trying to get out of using condoms or them choosing not to use condoms and all of that and kind of has these focus groups where they're explaining, like, the strategies that they use for condom avoidance. And I was like, oh, yeah, these are strategies that I have witnessed firsthand. Like, that feels Mm -hmm. relevant to say, like, it's not just this study. It's something that I, as a woman who has had sex with men, have witnessed. And certainly, uh, I mean, I... The things that I talk about are not necessarily things that I've experienced, but my experience in the world as a woman makes me understand them. Mm -hmm. And so when it's relevant, like, again, the book is not about me, 
But my experiences do come up from time to time when it feels relevant. In your columns or your essay writing, I'm, I'm sure there are points when you've inserted yourself more than, more than yeah, others. Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely when I was... So the essay was written for what was then Fusion mm -hmm. and then became Splinter and I, I don't know what it is now. But it was like I was... The type of essay I was writing the most for Splinter or Fusion at the time was kind of a mix of personal and reported. Mm -hmm. And so I would... The one about lying about sex, I don't think was that format, but I did a number of them where I was like, okay, I'm going to start from like my experience and then extrapolate out. So there was one about like the one that I liked the best, um, that I still reference a lot was like the problem with how men perceive rape. I'm basically just saying that for a lot of men, there's this assumption that either it's like violent, bad rape that you should go to jail for, or it's consensual sex and everything is cool. But actually there's this like huge gray yeah. area of violation. And so I did talk about like my experience and how like throughout my 20s, my sense of bodily autonomy was kind of chipped away by many men where it would be these like small violations and not a thing that anybody's going to go to jail for or that it even feels worth talking about sometimes but like just these like small offenses where somebody just ignores a minor seeming no and starts to like make you more aware of the fact that your boundaries are not inviable that your boundaries are seen as a suggestion mm -hmm. and not something fixed and that that kind of just makes you more and more pliant and more compliant and more willing to do things you don't want to do because you don't really even perceive yourself as having the ability to say no. And so I wrote about that and it like opens with just this like shitty date that I went on um, back in 2012 and how I ended up having sex I didn't really want to have because I just, the whole situation just made me feel like having sex that I didn't want to have, like getting drunk, having sex I didn't want to have was the easiest course of action. Mm. And how I was so depressed after that and I kind of had to reconsider like what my life was and how I'd been like so badly treated. So that one, yeah, it begins with my personal experience but then opens up to talking about other women and other women who share this experience, not necessarily the exact same experience that I did, but other women who were like, wow, I've had all these like soft violations that I don't know how to talk about because it's not rape. And maybe it's sexual assault, but if I say that it's sexual assault, then people will say I'm making too big a deal of it. But it is really traumatic and it is really something that has harmed me. And I think, um, yeah, so that essay was really important to me. And it was really important to ground that as, like, here is a thing. I Because that was uh, the era of people talking about microaggressions a lot, mm -hmm. I talked about sexual microaggressions was how I framed it. And that was something that I felt it was very important to say, like, this is a thing I have experienced. And also, um, it is a broader thing. Obviously, there's a, a broad spectrum of views when it comes to, like, objectivity yeah. and uh, analysis and porting. Um, that does tend to shift, though, when you make yourself more of a subject in the piece. Right. I mean, so one of the things that I think is really interesting in writing about sex is that everybody assumes you are just writing about your own personal sex mm -hmm. life. I try to be opaque about uh, my own personal sex life for that reason. From the standpoint of drawing the line and making it clear when you're describing yourself? Yeah. Or uh, but also, when you say opaque, you mean opaque. obscuring your yeah. own personal experiences? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I bring up my personal experiences when they're relevant, yeah. but it's like, I don't think that... And you, I don't think my writing benefits from people being like, oh, she's kinky or, oh, she's vanilla or, oh, she is dating a man right now or, oh, she's single right now or, oh, she's poly or, oh, mm. she's monogamous. Like, I think that the more that people know about 
my personal choices, the weaker my writing becomes in some ways because then people are projecting their assumptions about who I must be based on these arbitrary things. You're open about most of these things, it sounds like, but not within the context of the piece necessarily? No, I mean, I'm I'm not. I mean, if you look at, like, my Twitter, I'm actually, like, very – I don't tend to talk about relationships that Mm -hmm. I'm in. Sometimes I will. But it's kind of rare. Yeah. I mean, and then if you do enough detective work, you might be able to figure <laughs> sure. out a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But it's like, and those know. people are out there. <laughs> yeah. Right. There are. And yeah. like, you know, if that's how they want to spend their lives, okay. But it's like, for me, it's like, if I, again, like, if I say, let's say I say I'm polyamorous, and then suddenly everything that I say about monogamy or polyamory or whatever is going to be colored by that for people. But what I have to say is that your individual choice is what matters. Like, it's like, I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a party line I'm trying to sell aside from like, you need to do what is right for you. And I think that people fixating on what I am doing is kind of dangerous because I don't want people to be like, oh, what she's doing is the right thing. I think it's, I think it's Jake Tapper. I think he's the one who Hasn't voted in a presidential election since he became a political commentator. That's – yeah. I mean that's – it's I mean, not quite may, like that, that. that. I mean that's more like saying like you haven't had sex since right. you started writing about it. Maybe it's not the same thing. But, no, but – But obviously in his specific case or in the case of anybody who is um, – has the air of being a, a, an objective – reporter if they tip their hands at all in terms of their political leanings like that's when things get really sort of problematic on one side or the other right well it's like you know for me i mean there's certain things that i think it's important to be public and visible about i think it's important to say like i am a queer woman and i think sometimes like talking about queer woman's experience or saying like i consider myself someone who's been sexually assaulted i think that's why is why is the first one important because i think queer visibility is just important okay that one you know a lot of people just assume that I'm straight mm. and I I don't feel comfortable with that. Just just generally I think queer visibility, we're at a point – like I would love to be at a point where I could be like I am unknowable and like <laughs> my sexual identity yeah. doesn't matter but – I'm a being of light. Right. But – That's less about the work itself and that's more about just not being ashamed of these things. Right. And that's also about just combating heteronormativity. Yeah. That I think, like, you know, if you're queer, saying that you're queer is important. You know, for me, talking about whether or not I'm poly or monogamous or somewhere in between is not particularly relevant. For me, talking about where I fall on, like, a kink spectrum is not particularly relevant. Do you think, though, that qualifying that, that saying that you're queer, that saying that you have been a victim of of sexual assault, that those things are important to the writing as well? Or are those more just sort of about your own? can be because they're also these, like, marginalized identities. And I think it's also worthwhile because people who are sexual assault survivors and people who are queer are so often put under the microscope and written about by the dominant group rather than able to present their own experiences. And certainly, like, with some of these things, like, I'm not – I haven't been, like, violently raped. I haven't, like, whatever. But I think, like, there are certain ways that it is important to be visible and important to give – and I – it's also just, yeah, I, I mean, and, and some of this, again, it's, some of this is arbitrary. I mean, you could mm-hmm. also personally, you could certainly make the argument that like, oh, if I'm a kinky person, people are ashamed of that and I should be visible about that. And some people do make that argument. For me personally, it feels like things that feel more like sexual preference type things, like I would rather more broadly advocate for 
like things that feel more like I'm choosing, even though like there's a whole question of like, well, is kink an orientation or whatever. Those things I would rather kind of keep mum about because I think that it can potentially be a distraction. But I also think it's important and I commend people who are very open about their sexual preferences, who are very open about kink, who are very open about that stuff. I... I don't know. I also just sort of consider myself a really private person. Mm. So a lot of that, like, A, I don't think it serves the writing. Yeah. And B, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve me to have people know what specifically turns me on. Do you think that you're a more private person because you are a public person from the standpoint of you're somebody who's online and recognizable? It's it's a mix of things. Like, number one, um, I'm a private person in part because I come from a family that is relatively private mm. for a variety of reasons. Like, I just, like, there are certain things about my family that I just sort of know. It's like my parents kind of, like, keep things. Not necessarily from me, but it's like there are things you keep within the family. There's, like, a lot of stuff that just I was raised to, like, have this certain sense of privacy. Like, if you're having a crisis, you don't necessarily broadcast that. And that's just sort of like the ethos that I was raised with. Have they been able to embrace what you do for a living? Yeah. Yeah. My parents are very proud of me. They were at my book event. My parents are very just like, do what makes you happy. And they're very supportive. I have a great relationship with them. I watch TV with them every Sunday. They're walking distance from my apartment. It's great. Was it you I was talking to about watching Game of Thrones with your parents? Yes. Watch Game of Thrones. I mean, not anymore, but Game of Thrones, Westworld. Now (laughs) we're doing Big Little Lies. But so so number one, like, I feel like I was raised for a variety of reasons just to value privacy. I think that also, you know, I was on the internet fairly early and I was on the internet as a naked person at the turn of the century. And so number one, like when you enter the internet as a person who is exploring your sexuality publicly, I think it's important to have some kind of barrier. Although certainly when I was like 18, I had, I was much more public about a lot of stuff. When you say exploring your, your sexuality, do you, do you mean through your writing? No, I mean like I used to do like nude modeling okay. and all that. And so I was very publicly naked yeah. in the most literal sense. Is that is that exploring your sexuality though? Or is that just doing something for hire? Uh, for me, it was a part of, and that's certainly not a universal yeah. thing, but for me, it was a part of being 18 and figuring out who I was and figuring out what I believed in in this very, very direct and specific way. Now that you are sort of more private and yeah. now that you've taken on, on this career, do you have any regrets when it comes to having done that? No. I mean, I'm kind of glad that I did it at a time where things were not as – like a lot of that stuff has disappeared from the internet. I'm kind of grateful for that. Not because I'm ashamed of it, but because it's like who wants to permanently be remembered for who they were at 18? So – so, like, as, like, definitely by the time I, like, got on Twitter, which I was an early adopter, so a little over 12 years ago, like, by that point, I think I was significantly more private. Mm. And, like, as I got into my 30s, like, being more, probably by my mid-20s, like, being more private became very appealing. And, like, I've never been interested in, like, putting a relationship on Facebook or making it Facebook official for a number of reasons. But, like, part of it is, like, as I got a fan base, and I feel like my fan base is relatively modest but always growing, like, I'm very cognizant of the fact that these people don't know me and that I don't really want them... I I like to do this sort of magic act where people think that they know me and Mm -hmm. they think, like, I reveal enough details that feel personal that people are like, oh, like, that's who she is. I think I get her. But I like to, again, keep so much of it off because I like to maintain a part of me that's for me. And, you know, I... Not the biggest secret that Lux Alptrom is my work name and not the name I use in my personal life. 
And that, you know, that was an accident of coming up on the internet, being on the internet in an early area era where people didn't use their quote unquote real mm-hmm. names, of entering it through the sex industry, of all of that. But as a 36 year old professional internet person, I, I like having that boundary and that barrier. I like knowing that like the internet me and the work me, that there is this sense of separation from whoever I am as a personal, in my personal life. And that's not to say that like, I'm lying about who I am on the internet, but it's a different, it's code switching. And it's nice for me to have this very concrete recognition of who is which person and who knows what person and what that means. Do they feel like distinctly different people no, to you? No. No. It's, um, again, it's just sort of a code switching. It's the, yeah. it's work me in the same way that kind of everybody is a different person at the mm-hmm. office than they are with their family or with their friends or most of us are. Some yeah. people have very fuzzy boundaries, but you know, that it's that and it's, it's who the, quote unquote public knows me as and this is a question that comes up a lot mm-hmm. um as it pertains to musicians i ask this a lot of yeah and, and autobiographical cartoonists probably more than anyone else is there sort of uh, an implicit understanding that when somebody enters into a relationship either you know just a sexual relationship or you know like a more sort of committed long-term yeah. relationship that there is possibility that they're going to become fodder at some point I don't do that. I mean, because and it goes back to like again my whole privacy thing. Like I have written about past partners, mm-hmm. um, usually in a way, and again only when it's relevant, and really only when it's and always anonymous. Do you ever go back and sort of ask for permission to do that? Um, I haven't, but it's usually again done. Like I've written about having an abusive ex, and yeah. I've certainly never asked That's him not for some, permission. Yeah, sure. But there are certain like intimate things, that- right? Right. And I, I, those I don't tend to share. Yeah. Like, I am more likely to write about the bad experiences. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, and it's the bad experiences are the ones that feel like the most informative and feel the most important to talk about because there is so much shame. I mean, I think one of the reasons why it is so important to me to talk about times when I felt violated mm-hmm. or times when I felt weak is because as someone who was abused, as someone who experienced even these like minor violations, one of the things that made it the hardest for me was that I had so much shame because I had gotten this narrative about how strong women do X, Y, Z. Like strong women, if he says he's not going to use a condom, you leave. And there were times when somebody without my consent had sex with me without a condom and I just sort of froze and I was just sort of like, well, I hope I don't get a disease or like, I guess I just have to tolerate this. And I felt so much shame because I felt like there was something wrong with me that that was my reaction and feeling ashamed of it then just kind of led to this cascade effect where I couldn't talk about it. I felt really horrible. I felt bad about myself because I felt bad about myself. I allowed it to happen again, all of that. And And, you know, all I was hearing publicly was women being like, well, if he's not using a condom, I am leaving. And I was like, I'm just the one dumb slut who ends up in this situation. And when I opened up about things like that, I realized it was actually much more universal, uh, not universal necessarily, but much more common than I had thought. And that a lot of women felt very disempowered. And a lot of women ended up in these situations where they felt so ashamed that they hadn't made the quote unquote strong woman choice. And I realized that this sort of narrative... And again, this goes to the ways in which I think that, like, quote-unquote empowerment and a lot of feminism can actually trap women, is by creating this vision of a strong woman and not necessarily recognizing that it 
is often really difficult for a variety of reasons, how you're socialized, how people react to you, how you're treated, that it's often very difficult to be that person, that it can make people feel like they're failing at feminism or that they are personally weak. And so for me, just talking about like ways in which I was victimized feels important because I didn't see that narrative. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see that narrative of really it's not your fault and it's not just about like you were like beaten up or you were tied down or there was physical force like i i really wanted to talk about just the social pressures and then the social fears and the social messaging that gets instilled into women and makes it really difficult or the fact that you know sometimes you want to have that sex and like like everyone's fine we are like oh yeah men make bad decisions because they're horny but this idea of like women making bad decisions because they're horny like you're just a dumb slut and that, like, you, you can't simultaneously want sex but also feel violated by it. That that just means you are a bad person. So the book covers ground, you know, both in terms of just, like, the, the purely pleasurable aspects of mm-hmm. it and then, the you know, the more, obviously, the much more problematic aspects yeah. of, like, sexual assault. Are those subjects that that you've been writing about since the beginning? I mean, you know, it seems like... like Fleshbot, for example, like obviously, like sort of the, the more like forward facing stuff was kind of the more fun stuff, right? Yeah. The, like the, the sex toys and the porn, things like that. It's very different when you start writing about rape, for example. Right. So um, I, I feel like I should give the like Cliff Notes version of my sure. career. Okay. So I've had a very varied and diverse career, and probably most of your listeners don't know, don't know enough about me yeah. to have this context. So we'll put this context in. And I say one of the reasons why I have focused on sex for my career is because I'm someone with a short attention span and I constantly like want to shift things and there's just infinite possibility and infinite like directions to go in within this broad umbrella of sex and sexuality. So I got my start. So my mom was an HIV researcher and became an AIDS activist in the 90s and I got really invested in that. And so when I was 14 and going to high school in Buffalo, I became a member of the greater Buffalo area like HIV AIDS street performance team. So there was there was just no stigma around that stuff when you in my family family, no no not at all like i i grew up you know in a very queer positive home a very sex positive home like joy of sex was on the bookshelf (laughs) in my house i never looked at it but it was very hairy people yeah uh the kama sutra was on the shelf yeah so i grew up like my mom was the mom who would like give out condoms to Mm. like high school students Mm -hmm. that kind of thing so i joined this youth group where we basically put on terrible plays and did hiv education and that was kind of my my personal entry point into sex education um when i moved to new york to go to columbia at columbia i did a variety of things I my work study job was at the student health center for a while. Then it was at the rape crisis center. I was a volunteer HIV pretest counselor. So uh, when people would come in to get HIV testing, I would talk to them mm. and do the sort of like, "Why are you here today? Do you need to talk about anything?" I also that was the period when I was in college when I got really fascinated with indie porn and started modeling and then running my own site for a little bit. Then post college, there was a period where I did. Uh, adolescent sex education um, with an after-school pregnancy prevention program where I worked with New York City middle school and high school students and both did like sex ed lectures but also did more hands-on reproductive health counseling and like helped connect them to birth control or if they contracted an STI I was the one who told them and like provided them with emotional support or you know fielded midnight calls asking Mm. where you can get emergency contraception so I did that kind of hands-on work I really liked that towards the end of that I started blogging about sex on the internet again and not not my personal sex life but sex and pop culture kind of like 
talking about a little about porn, talking mm-hmm. about discussions about sex education, talking about sex in the news. And that was what led me to Fleshbot. And so Fleshbot, in some ways, for people, I think, feels like a hard left turn from talking to 10-year-olds about puberty. Um, but for me, it was like, okay, here's a different way to normalize the com- – normalize – sexuality and normalize and destigmatize discussion of sexuality. You can do that by teaching young kids about healthy sexuality, which is awesome and a, a cause I'm extremely passionate about. You can also do that by talking about pornography and sex toys in a really non-judgmental, really open-minded, really celebratory way, which was, you know, my tenure at Fleshbot. I still get people who are like, Fleshbot, my favorite Fleshbot was under you. I just Mm. really loved how you approached it. It was so fun. It was so great. And so I really tried to, you know, talk about the adult industry in a way that was respectful. Respectful both to consumers and producers to celebrate people who were doing this work, but also to not make people who were consuming it feel ashamed Mm. or judged or dirty. And then, you know, I did that for like six years and then I sold the site. I got really bored of it. And I... Then kind of launched my amorphous freelance career that is the period I'm currently in. And I've done a variety of things there. Like I've, I have and continue to, um, do consulting with sex tech companies. Um, so some, sometimes actually like tech companies who want to deal stuff do something sex related and need advice on that. Sometimes people who are making sex toys, but I kind of just help with a variety of different things. Sometimes marketing, just strategic planning really is how I think of it. And then I write. Um, I worked on a TV show about sex for Sex Right Now on Fusion. We were nominated for Peabody, uh, so I got that uh, under my belt. But my writing, it's been interesting because yeah. my writing, you know, for a while was a little more like pleasure-focused or queer identity or kink identity-focused. Mm-hmm. I think post-Trump, it shifted to me wanting to write more about abortion access and wanting to write more about sexual assault. Although I was writing about sexual assault yeah. while Obama was in office. Like, that sexual microaggressions thing was something that I wrote in 2016. And in that year, too, I wrote something about kind of navigating consent when you're drunk and how complicated that is. Like, a lot of things that kind of came up as, like, Me Too and Post Me Too, like, were discussions I was invested in having, like, as far back as, like, 2013. Like, whenever Steubenville was happening... Like, I was really, at that point, invested in talking about, you know, we're really committed to this idea of, like, the evil monster rapist, when actually, a lot of times, it's the nice guy, it's the friend, it's the it's the feminist dude. Yeah, and so, I mean, for me, like, I, I understand, like, logically, that for a lot of people, writing about abortion and writing about pornography are just wildly different. But for me, it's all connected in this larger umbrella of sexuality and of things that, like, need to be normalized need to be talked about things that oftentimes have like the same root issue in and just sort of manifest in different ways and and yeah right now i'm more interested in writing about abortion than i am writing about porn although i do still write about porn like i'm currently a columnist for one zero you named my column <laughs> io and that you know I, i'm writing about sex and tech but it it jumps a lot yeah um so the column that went up today was about social media sites how their restrictions on quote-unquote adult advertising really cast a broad net and like lingerie companies are often like really heavily censored in their attempts to advertise which i thought was really interesting but i also wrote about like tumblr's queer scene and how that has kind of disintegrated in the wake of adult content being removed from tumblr i wrote 
about like what other things have I written about? I've written about a bunch of stuff. Like I'm writing about something that's about like sex work decriminalization, which is another thing I care a lot about. There are things that are about like tech and porn. Oh, oh I wrote about a non-binary sex toy. Like it's it covers the gamut yeah. from things that are more like serious and policy driven and health driven to things that are more pleasure driven. But again, like I think a lot of it is related. I get the, this feeling in in my own work from time to time too of just being like you know oh it's it's you know here, here are all the fun things that you can write about but yeah. like everything is such a massive shit show right now yeah. that you like absolutely have to address what's what's going on and it's such a bizarre time to have these conversations where on one side you've got the me too conversation happening yeah. and you know you've got good moving in the right direction largely in terms of like uh transgender rights things like that yeah. and then you've got brett kavanaugh yeah Think, I mean, things are, like, think fragmenting in ways that we haven't seen them before. Well, it's, like, it's interesting. I think, like, the sort of, like, culture and the political establishment are diametrically opposed right now. I think the big difference, and, and this is just sort of a larger cu- yeah. cultural thing, is that that side of things is is developing its own culture in a way that there wasn't yeah. before, you know, and, yeah. like, through things like YouTube, through these, like, super fragmented versions of the media, it seems like everything is just kind of splitting apart, and yeah. there's just a larger, there's just a larger gap where, wherein, you know, I don't know, maybe this is just hindsight, but it seemed like progress was a is if if sometimes slow a fairly like linear progression in the past. I mean, but there's always a backlash to the progress. Sure. I mean, you know, you look at like oh like post reconstruction like mm-hmm. in like the 1890s or whatever you had like a backlash like black people made all this progress and then there was a backlash and you had like the 80s the backlash to feminism so i think we want to believe that progress is linear mm-hmm. and it really rarely is yeah. which sucks i wish it was linear i think on a long enough timeline it can feel linear mm-hmm. but when you get down into the granular part it's it's not and so much of this and then so much of this it's like you know the good thing about trump i suppose is that a lot of these things that were harder to get people to take seriously hmm. during the Obama era, it's sort of undeniable now. Because it's in the Obama era, you would be like, there is still really pervasive sexism and misogyny. There is still really pervasive racism. There's still, like, women's reproductive rights are, or anybody's reproductive rights are not assured. And people would be like, but really? Like, we have a black president. Yeah, and then Trump and, got but, elected and it all became, like, really visible and really ugly. I guess what I will say is, is if this is a sign of progress, it's that we now are, are viewing Trump's sexual misconduct in a very different light than Clinton's, for example. Yeah, oh, that's... And a lot of that has to do with... Some of it probably has to do with sort of, like, scope and what we know about those two individuals, but a lot of it also, I think, just has to do with a a cultural shift. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, like, I think we are making progress in some ways, even as we are fighting a backlash. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I will say it's just... it, it. it became really important to me to talk to write more about abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my one of the pieces that I have been most excited about in well, there's two pieces I was really excited about, both about abortion that I wrote in the past few months. One um, in February, it didn't come out until like about a month ago, but in February I went up to Buffalo, which is where I went to high school, and I went to visit the two abortion clinics that are in Buffalo City Limits, mm-hmm. which they're like five blocks from each other. Like literally there's a Planned Parenthood where you can get a medication abortion, which is mifepristone and misoprostol. And then there's Buffalo Women's Services where you can get a surgical abortion. And I just sort of wrote about how, you know, New York State is a quote unquote safe state for abortion. We just passed the Reproductive Health Care Act. Like it is protected 
there are a lot of, there's a lot of freedom, but at the same time, just because you have legal protection for abortion doesn't mean you actually have access to abortion. Because, you know, I think it's some like 40, over 40% of counties in New York State don't have any abortion clinics, which is partly because the way abortion functions now, it's, it's usually in a dedicated clinic, and then it's not a profitable enterprise. So you need to have a lot of people getting abortions, which means you can't really set up an abortion clinic in a rural area. And, you know, in in Buffalo, because because half of the half of the uh, half of the hospitals are Catholic, you know, and the other hospitals just for whatever reason rarely do abortion. Like, there's limited access. There's limited numbers of providers. If you want an abortion past 19 weeks in Buffalo, you might have to go to New York City, or if you have some complications, you might have to go to Rochester or New York City, and that's again in a safe state. Yeah. So I I just wrote about that and about kind of these the unwillingness of providers to provide abortions um, in like private practice in all of these different. Ways how there's even when we have legal protections, there's this social stigma um, that fuels a lack of access, which is really problematic. Um, and then I also kind of related to that wrote for Elemental. That one was for Post Industrial, which focuses on like Rust Belt cities. I wrote for Elemental Medium's health publication about how you know we have all of these reproductive health startups that are happening, like. NERCs or NURX or whatever their name is, is doing, they're actually, I think what they're doing is very cool. They're doing kind of like telemedicine, birth control and STI testing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like TIA, which feels like it's kind of trying to be like one medical clinic, but for like well woman exams. Um, I went to an event where a lot of these uh, companies were, and there was a kind body, which is IVF. And they all talked this really good game about how much they supported abortion and none of them provide abortion. And like, you know, NERCs is in a position where because of some FDA regulations around mifepristone, they, you can't really do, it's harder to do telemedicine abortion, which is a whole thing. So they're not in a position where they could do yeah. it. But you know, TIA has a, has a brick and mortar clinic. Tia has the ability to provide abortions, and right now all they do is provide, like, counseling to tell you where to go to get an abortion. And I, the fact that it is just accepted that you have to take an extra step to get an abortion is unacceptable to me. Um, and so I just kind of wrote about, you know, why are these startups not focused on abortion? Like, why aren't they providing abortion? And looked at a lot of the barriers that prevent people from providing abortion. And it, it's it's really frustrating to me because... The more, you know, everyone's like, oh, New York City, so much abortion access. But it's still like the fact that I have to go to a dedicated clinic if I want an abortion, I think is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I think abortion, if you are, you know, if you are a primary care provider, you should at very minimum be providing access to mifepristone and misoprostol, I think. If you are a uh, OBGYN, I think you should be providing all kinds of abortion. Like, that's my personal opinion. I think it should be more widely available in private practice than it is. I think I should not have to be referred out to get an abortion because it's not a complicated procedure. It's actually a relatively simple procedure. And I just find it really offensive that so few providers are actually willing to do it. And I understand. I understand that you, if you do it, you, your name gets put on a list. You feel like your safety is at risk and it, your safety may be mm-hmm. at risk. I understand like it's uncomfortable to have the conversation with people about I provide abortions. I understand all of that, but I think that that fuels the stigma. You know, again, like going back to the rural thing, if 
a gynecologist in a rural uh, town provided abortions that would make it way easier for rural people who need abortions. They wouldn't have to go to the nearest city. They wouldn't have to travel potentially five hours. Maybe would destigmatize it if more. Right. Well, it's also you know it would help destigmatize it. Also, if everybody, I'm not saying that like. Pro-life people would stop murdering abortion providers. But if everybody is providing abortion, it's harder to have a targeted protest. It's harder to it's harder to violently target people if it's like millions and millions of people are doing it. There you go. That was Lux Alptram. Her newish book, Thinking It, The Lies Women Tell About Sex and the Truths They Reveal, is out now on Seal Press. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify and YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. And that's about all we got for now. So stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 